So that's why I think also open source today is built a lot by big corporations and by people like me, like the individual developers I know that do open source are mostly like freelancers and consultants that kind of have a setup to commercialize some of their time at some point, because otherwise you can't stop doing it for your entire life. It's, it's a difficult problem to solve. Welcome to Nerd Out at Spotify, where we bring you behind the curtain of the world's most popular audio streaming subscription service. Machine learning, open source, clouds, tabs versus spaces. We'll talk to Spotify engineers about interesting tech issues, big and small. I'm Dave Zolotowski, principal engineer at Spotify. And at Spotify, we depend on thousands of open source projects many of which only exist because of the volunteer work from their maintainers. And for years, we didn't know how to help those projects. Here's one idea. Let's give them money. Last year, Spotify did just that. We started an annual fund to support free and open source software, the Spotify FOSS Fund. FOSS funds aren't a new idea, but since this was our first one, we knew we'd have a lot to learn. So we started small. We earmarked 100,000 euros and gave it away to nine different open source projects outside of Spotify. No strings attached. One of those projects was ByteBuddy. ByteBuddy is a code generation and manipulation library for Java that's been around since 2014. The project started off slow, going from very few users for years to suddenly growing to millions of users in just a few months. But as popular as it's become, ByteBuddy still only has one maintainer, its creator, and today's guest, Raphael Winterhalter. I'm also joined by Spotify's OSPO lead, Per Plo, who helped create and set up Spotify's FOSS Fund. We're going to talk about why giving away money is harder than you think, and what it's really like maintaining such a popular open source project, all on your own. So yeah, my name is Per. I am the open source tech lead at Spotify, and I generally work with anything like open source related at Spotify, which is a very broad topic, I guess. In a few words, what does that mean you you do every day? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it can split into two. I try internally to make us have the right tools and processes and priorities in regards to open source. And then the other part is like telling that story to the world, because we also want to actually share what we're doing, both in like try to export our culture of open source into the bigger world and also basically position ourselves as a company who is very positive towards open source. Cool. Then I guess that, that story is a lot of what we talked about uh, last time you were on. And uh, Raphael, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, sure. My name is Raphael. I'm a software consultant in Oslo, Norway, where I work at Sienta, a small company. And uh, I do a lot of open source work in the Java space mainly. I have Rove projects, mostly ByteBuddy, which has made its way into a lot of Java projects. Yep, we're definitely here to talk a bunch about ByteBuddy. Can you start by just telling me a little bit how you got into this stuff? Obviously programming and then into open source. Yeah, so I guess the typical story um, for most open source software developers that I was scratching my own itch. So I was doing a bunch of things and uh, web frameworks. I was helping out a bit on a project called Wicked. And they were using something called CGLib, which didn't really work for us the way it was supposed to. And in the beginning, I was trying to struggle around with CGLib for a while. And then I started my own library to compensate for the shortcomings of that library. But yeah, I could do like a more modern approach. It was already Java eight times and CGLib was written when it was still Java three. <laughs> so I had some advantages there. And then, um, yeah, got picked up by a bunch of other people. And today well, it's, it's kind of spread and I'm not doing all the other things anymore, but only this small side project that I <laughs> ventured out to do back then to just fix one small issue, really. 
I gotcha. So now you said this bite buddy is your full time job. No, it's uh, it sometimes feels like it, but for a while I was working quite intensely on it. And I, as I said, I'm a consultant, so I was working in projects as a consultant where I was more or less doing full-time work, writing the library, but also integrating the library into products. And that helped a lot. So based on that, I could really spend the effort writing the library in the way it's written today. But other than that, I am not working full-time on it. It's more like a, yeah. I would say a 30% job, which is a good thing as well, because I can work on regular code bases, which sometimes helps to keep your APIs understandable, because bytecode instrumentation can be a bit abstract, to say the least. And then if you are too deep into it, you kind of forget the connection between what you're doing and what most people using your library are working with. So that kind of, I feel it helps. And I think I would also would go crazy doing ByteBuddy 100%. It's too much of a niche for that. But I'm thankful for like the amount of time I get to work on it. Just the perfect amount, I'd say. And I, and I guess that's somewhat kind of, you, you get to decide how much time you spend on it. And that's why it's the perfect amount. Yeah, in a way, of course, I'm bound to customer issues and their demands, but I'm a bit flexible at least. So I, I build my hours, right? So if I have other hours to build and I can try to get some work to do on the problems I want to solve in the library. And of course, I mean, the problem with ByteBuddy is really that it's very much bound to the JVM development cycle. So whenever there's a new Java version coming out, I kind of have to speed through some things to get things working because otherwise I get a pile of issues saying like, why doesn't this work with Java 20 yet? <laughs> We're trying to do like our first release on that version. And then I kind of have to make things work quite quickly. But other than that, the JVM is so stable that I'm rather flexible on the things that I want to work on. And of course, ideally, I'll get a customer finding an issue that they want to solve, and then I can just solve it for everybody, which is sort of like the business model behind ByteBuddy. It's an open source library, free for use. And this, at least as of today, there's no commercial extension. So it's kind of the support and the issues that customers encounter that drives the library forward. And I'm lucky enough that it's a library where people just can't solve the issues themselves necessarily. So I gotcha. Yeah. So I guess we've come close to this already. Can you go into a little more depth of what ByteBuddy does and maybe a couple of examples of the types of issues that it solves? Yeah, sure. So code generation sounds fairly academic, but in the Java space, it's actually quite common. The JVM itself does it quite a lot as well. So the thing with Java or the JVM, even not only Java, the language, but the platform that executes Java and all the JVM languages like Kotlin or what it is uh, that people use these days, is that you cannot generate code snippet without giving it a nominal type. So what people sometimes want to do is they want to enhance code at runtime to do additional behavior. For example, when you call a method, you want to trigger some security check. Let's say you have some JDBC call and you want to protect it because it's very sensitive. You want to monitor who's calling it, how long it takes to call it, and what kind of context the call is encountered in. Instead of writing this into your code, which would be a rather repetitive job, like copy paste it everywhere, you generate a substitute for the class that you're trying to represent. So you have a single class with a single method, then you would normally like extend it right and say like this is the monitoring something repository and this is something that a code generation library can do for you on the fly so you just write your normal code and then you can basically install hooks whenever this method is called in my code i want to be notified and uh, trigger some sort of generic callback and people might notice like from spring for example where you execute something in a transaction context 
but you might also know it from tooling that you install, like performance monitoring tooling, where you want to measure how HTTP calls, how much they take when you instrument the HTTP client, because you don't want to rewrite the client. You just want to say that whenever this client makes an outbound HTTP call, measure the time when it's outgoing and measure the time when it's incoming back. And then the difference you write to some database. And yeah, I'd say this is the biggest application, at least commercial application for instrumentation is tooling like this, developer tooling, where you monitor applications automatically. Yeah, I got you. So Per, I guess, do you know how much about how we use it at Spotify and if it's similar things or if we have some other crazy use cases? I'm fairly sure we do. I think like we have over 5,000 registered users of, of this library across Spotify. So I'm sure we use it for all sorts of things. When I talk to engineering teams, they mostly use it together with the library Mokito, which I think is the most normal use case of ByteBody, I guess. But that's, I think, maybe you know better, Raphael. So, well, Mokito, I'm, I'm working on a Mokito team as well. Yeah. So that's me somewhere else, basically. <laughs> I'd say yeah, Mokito is probably one of the biggest use cases. And it's the same thing there, right? In Mokito, you don't have the metering repository that I mentioned before. You have the do nothing class that is the mock. You extend a class to create a mock and you basically override all methods to do nothing. And you could, of course, do this yourself. You could, for every class that you use, generate a testing stub that does nothing on each method evocation and then record the method calls and so forth. But we do this automatically. So this is the thing. And also since Java 17, this subclassing approach that is pretty straightforward doesn't work anymore. So now we have to dig into the JVM with a Java agent and redefine classes to basically inline the mocking logic. And ever since ByteBody has been glued into Mokito. So as a transitive property, I think most people would encounter ByteBody from mocking. Yeah, that's true. That's really interesting. When you were first talking about ByteBuddy, I think I very much didn't jump to something like mocking. So I'm curious, what was the path for ByteBuddy? Like you've started creating it and you said you had some customer issues and you had some specific things you were trying to solve. But how did you get from there to this place today where companies like Spotify have, whatever pair said, five plus thousand uses of it? <laughs> yeah, so that's a good question. And it's nothing you plan really. But it's been like a steady upturn been like a hundred thousand extra downloads each month since I started really. In the beginning it's been really no uses really for let's say two years. And that was a good thing as well retrospectively because I could change a lot. So every time I had to break an API I would know the five people using it and I could basically send them pull requests <laughs> to compensate for my breakage. But yeah, and then with Mokido and Hibernate, that were the first two big users, basically gave ByteBody the stamp of approval. And I think since it takes quite a lot of time to generate a code generation library that is complete in the sense, since you kind of have to re-implement the entire type system of the JVM and the entire bytecode concept, you have to re-implement everything the JVM knows, which is growing and growing. So it's it's kind of, I don't think I could write ByteBody again today <laughs> since Java 9 with the module system and generic typing. And so the JVM is pretty complicated. I think that's basically it, the, the lack of alternatives. <laughs> it's not that necessarily ByteBody doesn't have any weak points, but I think it would take a couple of years for someone to rewrite or generate a code generation library to the same degree. And, and then everybody settled on using the library. And since everybody needs code generation to some degree, because everybody has cross-cutting concerns, um, it's so spread. And then the other thing is that a lot of people really don't know ByteBody, but it's used by other libraries that people use. Libraries like Hibernate, like Mokido, like AssertJ, and so forth. 
they all have this need and then they use ByteBuddy and then people use popular libraries use ByteBuddy. <laughs> that's the start, right? And then from there, sometime I got interest by commercial users. And that's why I still can keep it live because in the beginning it was more like a very extreme hobby, <laughs> I could say. I mean, I'm, I'm not a native Norwegian. I moved to Norway like 10 years ago. And so I, I didn't have the social <laughs> surroundings in the beginning. So an excess of free time and long winters led to the first versions. And I don't think like now with kids and family, I don't think I could do the same thing anymore. Yeah. So I, so that's what I guess also what stops other people from attempting to create a library like it. I'm sure there are other people somewhere out there that don't have kids yet and are in a similar state to what you were then. But I see your point. Yeah. So you were basically toiling away on this for two years alone before anyone else started jumping into this. When did you see other people starting like contributing to this thing? Well, I mean, of course, I tried to push it to the open source projects that I was involved with and saying, like, we have this problem here and I can solve it. But then, of course, there's this established other library and then there's the new library. So you, you kind of wait until it, it gets users, which is the irony of an open source project. You need users to get users. If you just have some code lying around, then people don't trust the code because it's a security issue or because it's unmaintained, but you might just stop it the same way you started it and then you have this dead dependency. But then, yeah, I mean, the two alternatives for ByteBody today are JavaSyst, which is written by a Japanese university professor in his 70s. <laughs> and then you have CGLib, which I maintained for a while, and I don't maintain it anymore. I think it was written by some guy who works at Google, and he also found new languages and new things to do. So those two libraries that are the only alternatives, they just have been stale and lying around. And then thanks to that, <laughs> I think I got some traction because I was, of course, a risky option, but the other two options were also risky. And then, as, as I said before, like once Hibernate and Mokido picked it up, that kind of was the breakthrough. And then it really went really quickly from no users to millions of users in a few months, which was also a good thing because like if I make a small mistake in the library, I get a ticket within 10 minutes after release. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting that I guess you, tons and tons of people use it, but barely even know they use it. Yeah, and it's also in, in software, normally, if you make like a risky feature or change, then you would roll it out like incrementally, right? You would try with 1% of the users. And unfortunately, in how open source is built, especially if you're mostly a transitive dependency, you can just release it and then everybody breaks immediately, right? Especially now with tools like Dependabot, everybody updates pretty quickly <laughs> and you get the bug reports pretty quickly as well. <laughs> yep, you make a change and you very quickly know from, I don't know, thousands of places that the change was broken in some weird scenario you never tried. Yeah, exactly. Over time, you get careful with the change. And that's also what I said before, like in the beginning, I really could make risky changes and do fast evolution. Now things feel like an enterprise project where you <laughs> have five levels of integration testing and approvals before you can release something. But it's self-imposed just for my own sanity sake. So tell me a little bit more about what your everyday day-to-day -day life on this is then, because you've mentioned a few times you have some issues or you make a new change and then, I don't know, half the internet comes telling you that it's broken. But what does that mean day-to-day -day actually looks like with this? Like how common are some of those scenarios? So the, the advantage now is that the core is pretty stable, mainly like the most stressful times right now is when the JVM changes something. So like I remember the module system was a fairly stressful affair for me because I'm pretty much bound into the JVM. And then I'd say this is the most effort I have to put in being on the mailing list, the open JDK mailing list, and saying, you know what, if you take this away, then all of this will also disappear. Negotiating 
<laughs> with the OpenJDK team, what they have to retain and what they can take away, because of course they also have to evolve the Java platform. And in the beginning, especially, ByteBridge was tied pretty much deeply into internal API uh, of the JVM. And now it's more like it discovers at runtime what version it runs and how stable and compatible to the JVM it can be. But like the coding doesn't take so much time. The coding is pretty straightforward. It's more the finding out what's the right approach that will not break within two or three JVM releases. I'm bringing it up on the Java mailing list right now, for example, the OpenJDK plans to introduce a bytecode generation API, but a very basic raw one. And then now I try to kind of steer it in a way that I can remain compatible and not make everybody change their code. And that's many discussions and many trial and error. The prototypes, they write and I write pull requests to try to influence the, the development in a way that I think is the right way. And then they have different opinions on things. And we hopefully compromise and typically we compromise on something that I can live with. And yeah, I'd say this is 90, 90% of the effort. 9% of the effort is answering tickets and 1% is actual coding that is showing in GitHub. And it comes in waves. Sometimes I'm feeling burned out with it and then I need to take a break for a few weeks. And then I go back on it and maybe take a work of paid work to really work on ByteBuddy for something that I want to implement. So then you mentioned before that you you also have a day job. So how does this work with the fact that you're also, I think you said working for Sienta? Yeah, so see, I mean, we're a consultancy. So my customer for the last six years was the Norwegian Tax Authority. And I'm doing like a lot of their technical stack there and trying to keep their processing sane and efficient. <laughs> but yeah, it's very much different what I do with ByteBuddy. I've done like the Silicon Valley gigs in between for consulting and they're all super fun and very challenging, but they also are a fully different world of development requirements. So I get to do both and I can alternate a bit. And if I feel like doing the one thing, I scale up the one thing and scale down the other thing. But yeah, I mean, it's challenging to find the balance, but so far I managed to. Can you back up a second and even explain what, what it means to be a consultant and what consulting is? So as a consultant, basically, I get paid to solve problems and often formulate the solutions to these problems in code in the end. So I'm, I'm basically contracting for different clients to solve problems that either they cannot solve themselves because they don't have the competence or the manpower simply. And yeah, since I'm doing a lot of open source, I tend to find clients that way, that they use a library I'm involved with, or they try to solve a problem that I have talked about at conferences and so forth. <laughs> and how did you get into that? I guess like everybody, I started out just coding, doing having a, a regular job. And then the more demand there is for your kind of work, and typically you work at a company and you get reached around between teams because you're the guy who knows how to do X. And then at some point you realize, all right, that's... There's a way that I can do X not only within different teams in my company, but I can do X for different teams in different companies. And then it's just one step further. And then especially since I do a fair share of open source and I like the flexibility of, of being able to do something else after my own needs. <laughs> yeah, so I'm curious, how, how, much is, uh, how much is these two parts of your life intertwined, like working on, on ByteBuddy and open source and then being a consultant? How, how are these two, are, are they connected at all, actually? I think they're the same to the degree that they both require sitting in front of a computer and writing software, but that's <laughs> about it, I'd say. I think if I only did ByteBuddy, I would at some point forget how to program 
normal <laughs> software because it's such a different problem space. They're nice because you get bored with the one thing and then I want to do the other thing again. But besides typing code, they're very different. ByteBody is kind of an extreme. I'd say like normal open source work isn't so different from normal paid programming. I think also that's the reason why people not often feel like they can commit to open source projects because it's such a different workflow and, and expectation. And again, also I'm running ByteBody by myself, so I can do whatever I want <laughs> That's also a different scope than I do with customers. I can't just go into a customer and say like, you know what, this stuff, I don't like it. I will allow, now bill you 200 hours to make it slightly better. <laughs> I can do that with ByteBody. I can do like these irrational improvements that would never pay off in an economic context. Do you have any fun examples of times you've done that? Well, the whole internal type system of ByteBody, I've rewritten that once to basically just cover a minor case of a generic case that I haven't covered. So that I think I spent a year just <laughs> making the same thing. <laughs> well, but that was before I, I had my first kid. I wouldn't do that anymore. You have to find the balance of second best often. That's the most important skill I think you have to learn being a commercial software developer. And by the way, at least for the first five years, wasn't a commercial interest of mine. It was just a like my Zen garden, <laughs> I can <laughs> perfectionize everything. And yeah, it's not like that anymore. There's some dirty corners now that I haven't touched and I, I learned how to live with them. Maybe the same question I'll ask there, if there are any particularly fun ones that, that you want to talk about or if it's a space that you just don't want to think about because then it'll ruin your weekend and you'll spend the whole time fixing it. No, no, no. I, I know like, for example, in ByteBody, the entire stack map frame generation internally isn't perfect. It could need a proper rewrite and I'd love to do it, but it will probably take years to get it right and then it would be super cool to have it. But the thing with stack map frames is that they're really hard to process and a lot of people have tried i think like the, the frustration i don't think i could live with that <laughs> if i never finish it because the problem is that this, the jvm was pretty stagnant for a while then after oracle bought sun they switched gear and now i have to prioritize to to keep pace with the development there and then also of course i can now feel a lot of libraries rely on that part of it so i focus on that and then of course since it's less of a hobby project now in this regard i also have more focus on having customers that actually pay for my time working on ByteBody now because i mean i'm i'm in my late 30s now i'm not sure what i'll do in 20 years if i'll still <laughs> at some point i kind of have to find a way how to retain it by not only having me work on it how does that conversation go with companies? Is it because they come to you and say, hey, we think this thing is broken or we would like this? And then you say to them, well, you, you should pay for that then. But they're like, hey, it's open source, it's free. No, to be honest, companies are much more open to hiring you than it normally is portrayed. And of course, you have the problem if it's like a big mega corp, then just figuring out how they pay you is like a one-year project. But like apart from that, it's normally pretty straightforward. Step one normally is we wrote something using ByteBuddy and we're stuck. We have these problems and we already have our first customers. So we need to fix these problems. We have to fix them fast. So we realize that we need help and can you give us help? And then once these original problems are solved, then they start venturing into their own direction. Like they don't try to solve the standard problem anymore. They try to solve this one problem that makes that startup or this subdivision project something special. 
then they might need something in the library that especially like if you have some performance requirements, then it's quickly that you have to change the library to make it happen. And then they need to yeah get me on board to, to make these changes or they could of course fork it, but that's again, not economic. So the, the economic yeah, calculation helps me that I of course can just have it in the main line and then hopefully also maintain the feature for them throughout changes that I make in the future. Once they build a product that is profitable on ByteBuddy, and then there's a new Java version coming out, and they have this one customer that's super early out and wants to run their software on the newest JVM, and their tool doesn't support it, and then they ask me, like, yeah, can you tell us when you're going to support Java 20? And say, yeah, I don't have time the next five weeks, but if you need it now, then I can make time, but then you have to pay me. Yep, there's a really interesting thing that I think happened between when Per asked that question and when you answered it. I think Per asked how companies engage with ByteBuddy. And I think your response immediately started with companies hiring me. And how does that work? Because it seems like the company is saying, like, we want to pay for more ByteBuddy. But if you're the maintainer, that effectively means pay you as a consultant. The thing you can use ByteBuddy without hiring me, of course, and a lot of people do. But I think once you become so involved with the library and if you build an agent, that's super easy to get like the first version running, but then it's super hard to cover the corner cases again. And I've seen all the corner cases by now. I think then it's a natural next step, at least if you're a super user to get me involved. But sometimes I'm surprised I get a question from someone I don't know and never will hear of again that's super smart and super advanced on Stack Overflow, for example. I think like, whoa, what are you doing? (laughs) I haven't thought of about this yet. So I guess some other people figure out how to use the library in a very advanced context as well without my help. But I won't hear about these cases, unfortunately. I even meant just if you're the maintainer that I imagine that a company paying for some support with ByteBuddy would eventually end up paying you or paying you and I would say the team working on ByteBuddy, which is effectively you as well. Since you kind of quickly turn that into hiring you, it sounds like there isn't really like a ByteBuddy structure. So it's not like someone can pay into ByteBuddy and submit an issue to ByteBuddy and then have the ByteBuddy team, which today is you, but maybe in a few years will be you and others or whatever, do work. It really is like ByteBuddy exists on GitHub. But if someone wants to pay for it, you have to pay Raphael. There's no ByteBuddy to pay into. Yeah, that's true. I can get like on a whole ramble on taxes and company structure <laughs> requirements, legal requirements, value-added tax and so forth. It's super hard to sell software as license or like as a bundle. It's much easier to be a consultant and say like, yeah, I'm for hire. You can hire me for 20 hours and I'll solve your problem and this is my rate. It's much more straightforward than having a web shop where you can say, I want a Byte Body subscription because then I'm selling something, right? And I have to register in this country I'm selling to and so forth. Then I get all the legal and bureaucratic overhead. And I think I'm as proficient in software as I'm in tax and legal structures by now. (laughs) It's a lot of complexity that I guess, to to your point, it's probably a thing you don't, you you wish you didn't have to know, but you do. And I think like if I wanted to commercialize ByteBuddy at some point, then I would have to figure out like an extension and then probably try to create a structure around it, create a separate limited company and so forth. And then just this yeah. get my situation out with two small kids at home and way enough to do and still enjoy doing it the way I do it. And it works well enough. I haven't really done big steps to change it, but maybe at some point I have to because uh, yeah, I will not sit and do bite body in my 80s, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I'm curious also about the other side. I think Per can speak a lot about Spotify's attempts to help with this same problem from the other side of funding open source projects that we depend on. 
Yeah, I think yeah, we can start with the money part, which also plays into what Rafael is talking about. That we wanted to make sure that the third parties who work on software we depend on is paid. And we can, of course, not step in and pay all developers in the world. We can we, we can do it to a limited extent to kind of see how it works out. So we in May, we launched the FOSS Fund to start basically sponsoring projects we depend on. And we put 100,000 euros in there to see how that was going to go and see what's going to be the outcome. And can we see like a positive change in that in those projects we were going to sponsor? So we wanted to just sponsor a handful, maybe up to 10 projects to see how that was going to go. And that was challenging in itself, like just figuring out what are you actually going to sponsor? What is actually important in an organization the size of Spotify? And there's many opinions about what's important here. And, and we tried asking engineers by just doing a survey. Basically, hey, if we were to sponsor something with 10,000 euros, who would you pick? And it was anything from you should sponsor Linux to you should sponsor this like extremely esoteric Rust testing tool that no one heard about before. And so, and then you can, okay, there's like very different opinions about what is critical to an organization like Spotify. And and, uh, it's just because people have their own context of what they are working on. And so for some person working on something in Rust, he thinks this is extremely important. So that was the first challenge, just like figuring out like what should we actually sponsor. And so we had a, a set of guidelines of saying we don't want to sponsor things that already has enough money. That's like things that's already sponsored by the Linux Foundation or is run by Microsoft or Google or any of the other big tech companies because we guess they have enough money. So we would rather go small and also try to go further down the stack and find things like ByteBuddy, which doesn't receive that lot of attention. And it's like one of those dependencies you don't know you have. To kind of get the other side of these you can say qualitative responses from the engineers. We asked the security team, like, hey, what's actually inside all our different projects that we have on our internal GitHub? And they came back with a list of thousands and thousands of dependencies. And I was just like, okay, let's just try ordering them by number of occurrences across our applications. And then we could kind of start picking it apart. We can filter out all the stuff that came from like the Android stack and so on, which we probably didn't need to sponsor. And then, then you go down and actually you start finding these like small things like ByteBuddy was actually both on the list of things that were suggested by engineers. They were totally aware that it actually existed, but it was also like <laughs> a very high number of the stack of things that we depended on in so many different projects. Then we had like, a, I think, a list of 25, 30 projects in the end. At some point, we just had to stop collecting. And then it was like, okay, let's go down and see one who's actually willing to even ask for money. And surprisingly, few actually are. Because again, I think also what you touched on, Raphael, I think it's complicated to actually get money for your work when you work in open source and you might have a job next to you. And do you need an accountant? And do you need to figure out taxes from wherever you are? At the same time, our accountant department was also saying like, well, you cannot give people money in some random country. You can't because it's like the tax situation is way too complicated to figure that out. And we don't know if we are like funding some anarchist movement there, which we probably don't want to fund. So again, like this whole system of trusts, which normal business have, doesn't really exist when you start moving into sponsoring open source projects. So that was like a challenge in itself. For better or worse, the world needs accountants and tax people all the way through these systems, especially when we deal with bigger companies. And that's kind of a challenge. So I think finding 10 projects to actually sponsor where we say, okay, there's no friction on the tax or legal side. There's actually people at the other end who can actually receive funding. And we also know that we need them. That's the three gates you need to go through. And that was actually a bigger challenge than I would originally thought. Because when you look at it, it's like, okay, we're using thousands and thousands of dependencies inside of Spotify. I think we have 30,000 actually in total. But then actually just getting to that number of funding projects is harder than you actually think. We ended up funding nine projects in total this time around. And I think all the projects we ended up funding 
are all really good recipients of funding. They all need them. They all have a good way of using them. We were actually able to transfer the money to them, which is a success story in itself. But I, I can honestly not tell you if we funded the best projects. I don't know if we actually picked the top 10. I know we picked 10 good ones. There might be 20 others that might have needed this money more, but it's like, that's a thing we need to work on and improve on. But this was the first round. And we'll learn from it and see how it goes next year. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like it was extremely complicated for both sides. And all we wanted to do is give some people doing some great work some money. And that should be that should be really simple. You know, it's like you're doing some work or you're providing something of value. I'd like to pay you for that value. But this, yeah, this ecosystem is not that simple, unfortunately. Yeah. So maybe I'll ask Raphael, like, was it worth all of that work? Like, I know you got some of the money, did it? Did, yeah, I certainly. And that, that's my advantage also that I already have a setup to receive money. I think if that was like the first time that I would get like a cross-country payment, then I might have struggled more with it because banks immediately ask, like, you got a big transfer from abroad. What's that? <laughs> and you can say, yeah, it's a payment for a thing I do. And then can you document that? Then you get the GitHub sponsors receipt that has five lines on it. <laughs> yeah. Then they ask you, this doesn't look very official. Can you get something better? And then you have to talk to them. <laughs> and they can't really give you something better, even though they might be complicated to you. They're there for a reason. So that's why I think also open source today is built a lot by big corporations and by people like me, like the individual Developers I know that do open source are mostly like freelancers and consultants that kind of have a setup to commercialize some of their time at some point, because otherwise you can't stop doing it for your entire life. It's a difficult problem to solve. But yeah, I mean, in the end, it's, the question is really what you asked before, the, who needs it the most? And you could say maybe the weird Rust testing library needs it the most because they can do an amazing thing with the money that nobody ever had the time and resources to solve this thing but you don't know in advance so the bootstrapping bit really is the hard bit anyways and that's not solved or solvable i could see myself writing more open source like something from scratch where i kind of invest two years of my life to build something and solve something that i know could be done better but maybe i fail and then <laughs> i can't take the risk myself and you as a sponsor probably don't want to take the risk either and that's a whole drive behind open source is that some enthusiast spends a ridiculous amount of money to write something that is good enough to be used in production at a company like Spotify, which then has to defend how the millions of users might be affected by a breakage in this library that someone just made for fun. This step is the hard step. So even by funding, and I'm super thankful for the funding because then I can use the money for something I think I should do in the library and not something a customer thinks I should do with the library, which is two very different things sometimes. But yeah, the whole bootstrapping and pursuing a new idea is really hard, even though if all the legal setup would be in place. That sounds like it's it's a lot of effort, but in, in the end, it's a good thing. We're kind of going in the right direction and figuring it out, even if we're not quite there yet. Yeah, exactly. So just not expecting anything. And then when it works out, it works out and then it's great. <laughs> but don't do open source to make money in the first place. I think that that won't work for most people. I'm curious if there are other things that you think companies like us should be doing to help open source projects and to help maintainers like you. I think the way Spotify did it is, is pretty sane in the sense that kind of often you get like small drips of money. And like, I cannot say it to a customer, I won't work one day. I need to plan, like I, I take two weeks out between projects or a month between projects and assignments. I plan to do something. So if you have a chunk of money, that 
kind of gives you a different flexibility than like here's a hundred dollars here and there that you cannot really plan with because that's too little to do something significant just sitting down this day and booting my computer and remembering what i wanted to do will cost me more time than i kind of collected it and there's no point really so it's kind of the weakness of volunteer payments <laughs> compared to contracts that's kind of why, why in general i prefer working with a commercial entity where i know they have a definite paid off by my work that's kind of the most reliable planning otherwise it's nice if it's like a big chunk of money then i can say like all right uh, next january i will not work for clients i will just do this one feature on my body that i always wanted to do and now i'll do it but yeah i haven't figured it out how open source can work without commercialization at some point all the models are kind of sad to their own degree either you make like the open core thing where you kind of take away the features that are really useful and then ruin it for most users or you do like the full open source model that I have and then always have to run for customers and try to convince them to stay with you <laughs> as long as you don't really live and die on the project so if that's your only source of income I think I would be stressed out sometimes so so the best thing is to do it still because you like to do it so maybe the other thing I want to dig in a bit more I forget exactly how you phrased it but you said something about how the money that Pear was talking about Spotify giving was different. Can you talk a little bit about how it's different and why it's like an exciting thing in itself? Well, I guess we all as software developers have been in a situation where you have to do this feature that you don't feel fits in yet. So you have to do something before you do something. But now you are paid to do the first thing that you don't want to do yet. So I could, of course, sit down into the long road, try to get everything in place. But once you take money from a commercial client, it's the strings attached, right? In the end of the day, you, once you take the money, you have to deliver on the feature, like normal consulting. But now it's in the open source library, so other people will start using it. And then you can't really change it the way you kind of wanted to do it anymore. And I'm trying to be careful there, what I take in and what I don't. And then, yeah, it, it, so far it always worked out for me. But if I have money without having to accomplish something particular, then I can maybe do the rewrite of this internal API that doesn't work out today. And then I can maybe retrofit some other things into this refactored API. And then future features will be more easy to maintain and more stable. So you can use the money to focus on that sort of thing, the kind of sustainability, the long-term stability of the project as opposed to like specific point things. Yeah, exactly. Thanks a lot. This is a lot of fun. I'm glad we got to dive yeah, into this. Yeah, it was brilliant. Stuff. Thanks for having me. So, Per, what, what do you think? We created this FOSS fund. We've started trying to put effort into creating sustainable open source ecosystem for the projects we depend on. How do you think we're doing? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, as you also heard him say, it's like this is not solving his problem totally. But I think it's part of the bigger equation in this ecosystem is that I think more companies need to figure out a way to fund these projects. And I think if more companies do it, They'll also flow more money into this. What I think is very positive, though, what I heard him say was that he can step away from his like crowdfunding for a moment and actually just focus on improving some internal things without having a customer pay for that feature. So he can make the project 
better and more sustainable over time without having him worry about some company paying for him. And I think that's great. I think that's exactly what I also hope that the money would go for is that they can kind of take a breather for all these like complexities of running an open source project. One of the other recipients I talked to, they're going to spend the money totally different. They got an equal amount, but they're actually spending the money on plane tickets to fly their maintainer team and to actually meet each other. And they thought that was a better investment of saying, hey, we should actually all sit down and meet and talk because we've never met each other. We only talk to like <laughs> GitHub issues. And we feel that's a better investment because we also want to make sure that this team actually sticks together and are engaged in the future. So it's two very different ways of spending money. But I think it also goes into this part of giving these maintainers maybe a breather from actually this, <laughs> this maintainership. And I think that's important. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's a completely different things where this specific money goes to, but it seems like it kind of adds up to the same thing, making it so that they can sustain the rest of their lives while also doing this. And I think it's interesting because this is also the way like an actual commercial company go about. Like we in Spotify also have offsites to be re-energized and get new ideas and meet the team and so on. And we also invest money into things that we don't have a buyer for. We also do research and development that no one is really paying for upfront. But open source is kind of special in that way that it seems, at least from Raphael's point of view, is like he can only really sell things that people know they already want. <laughs> so if he needs to like experiment with something, he needs to pay for that himself. He's not going to have a customer paying for that. Yeah. So I think that's where like a thing like Fund does make sense is that we can actually give them that financial room to also do those things. And so it's not just always about churning out code that people actually want to pay you for, because that's not how software development works. You also have all these other expenses and things you would like to do here. So I guess maybe we're not quite there yet, but we're kind of on the right track and circling around the right thing. Yeah. Outside of Bite Buddy and this coding stuff, are there other things you nerd out about? Since I have small children, that's all I do these days. <laughs> Three-year-old and a five-year-old. I, I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> so all time that I'm not working, I feel like I spend with them, which is a great thing, though. Quite honestly, I'm glad if I get enough sleep these days. Thanks for listening, and make sure to follow us so you don't miss new episodes. Nerd Out at Spotify is produced by Spotify's Ted Vergakis and by Seaplane Armada who also wrote our rockin' theme song. I'm Dave Zalatuski. Thanks for nerding out with us.